You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. We're going to jump into our series, so please bear with me this morning. Preaching sick is not fun for me or you, um, but we can get through this together, right? And so um, we're in a series called Deconstructing Life Under the Sun, and it's taken out of a very unusual and unique book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever tried to read Ecclesiastes, it can be a bit puzzling to think like, why is this in scripture? It seems so negative. It seems so cynical. And, and hopefully you've been tracking with this series. You'll know why. Um, and so we're going to jump in straight away. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is part of what's called the wisdom literature in scripture, book of Job, book of Proverbs, book of Ecclesiastes, all very different, but it's actually under the banner of wisdom. And wisdom is getting us to answer this one question. It says, what does it mean to live well in this world. That's what wisdom is trying to get you and I to think about. And so not let life just pass us by, but to think, am I living it well? And maybe we could add, according to whose standard am I living it well? And so Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Proverbs um, are a lot, is a lot easier to read, right? It's a book of just these little short sayings, and they're great. It's 31 chapters. Sometimes people do one chapter a day and they read it through. I'm sure some of you who've been in your Bible got your favorite Proverbs. Um, and they're great. But Proverbs, sometimes we make the mistake and think they're promises. Proverbs are not promises, but principles. <laughs> General principles to live life well. In other words, if you do these things generally, your life is going to go better than if you didn't. And so, for example... Proverbs 14.23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Uh, a very popular one for particularly parents or new parents, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he or she is old, they will not depart from it. And then lastly, do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. And so that's Proverbs. That's really great. It's encouraging. If we do these things, it's really good. Ecclesiastes comes along and says, yeah, but what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when I work hard and I don't get any profit? What happens when I train up my kids and as adults they walk away from the faith or they take a different path that I thought? What happens if I am skilled but I get overlooked constantly? Ecclesiastes addresses the exceptions to the rule. And you and I know that life is not as simple or not as simplistic as just Proverbs. Generally, those are great principles. But what happens when we even do the right thing and it gets us in trouble? When we do the honest thing at work and instead of getting us promoted, it gets us fired or gets us behind because everyone else is taking cutting corners and you are not doing that. And so Ecclesiastes focuses on those exceptions to the rules and um and ask the question of what happens when uh, life isn't fair or just or rewarding. And so right at the end of Ecclesiastes, this is really helpful for us, the author says that the wise words, the words of the wise are like goads. And a goad is like a sharp pointed stick that was used to prod cattle. Uncomfortable, but helpful. And so that's what the words of the wise are doing and Ecclesiastes is doing, is going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to provoke you, and it's good, and it's helpful if we allow it to do that. And so what it's trying to do is it's trying to say, hey, we can have a simplistic, naive, childish 
view of the world, that's really not going to be helpful to navigate the complexity of life. And so what we want to do is dismantle or deconstruct those naive things and ways of thinking about the world and how the world works, but actually wade through some of that complexity and come out the other side, not of a childish faith, but a childlike faith. So we still have a faith and a trust in a good God, but we know that life is way more complicated and complex than sometimes we think it is. And so today we're going to be looking at deconstructing Merit. And so the two scriptures I'm going to look at are from chapter 2 and chapter 9, so they'll be up on the screen behind me. It says this, The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, This too is hevel. Now that hevel is a Hebrew word, and we looked at that in your Bible, it might say meaningless. It's, I don't think that's a great translation. Hevel literally just means breath or vapor. And it's 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher says, this is hevel, this is hevel, life is hevel, work is hevel, pleasure, hevel, 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 hevel. Sounds like devil, I know, but it's easy, yeah. And so what he's saying is, not necessarily that everything is meaningless, but like breath or like smoke. You can see smoke, right? It's there. But when you try and grab it, there's just no substance. And it's frustrating. And then go, it's gone. And so hevel is a metaphor for the very transient nature of life and the frustrating, sometimes absurd things of life. We just don't understand or it's frustrating. We're trying to grab onto something substantial. And it's just when we think we have it, it falls through our fingers. Now we're going to go over to chapter 9. And he goes on and says this, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So now if you read Proverbs, I, I, this is not original to me as someone else, but he's described it like, described like this. If you read Proverbs, it's kind of like the reading a, an optimistic grade three teacher, just bubbly, full of life. This is amazing. You do this. Life's going to turn out great for you. Ecclesiastes is like a middle-aged cynical lawyer. That's the voice that you're hearing. This dude is a bummer. <laughs> it's like, man, dude, like... And another key phrase that we understand is that under the sun, Ecclesiastes is looking at life. It's looking at all the ways that you and I try to find meaning and purpose in life from a completely and purely earthly perspective. No God, no divine intervention, just like, and he's, and he's looking and he's, and he's going on this journey. He says, is it in work and career? No, nope, that's heaven. Is it in pleasure? No, that's heaven. Is it in wealth? Lots of people have wealth, but they seem miserable. It's not there. And he's going down all these dead ends, all the things that we think are going to give us ultimate uh, purpose, meaning, and satisfaction in life. And he says, no, nope, it's heaven. It's, it's, it's not substantial. And so, those are two very important words, uh, phrases at least, for us to remember as we go through Ecclesiastes and provide the context for which to hear the teacher, right? Um, I remind you, it is in Scripture. It's in the canon of Scripture. You can't rip it out your Bible, and you can't scribble in it, and it's important. The teacher asserts that we are mistaken to believe that we have complete control over our lives and that success is ours to achieve on our own. And so we're going to look at deconstructing merit today. 
merit being the sense of you're deserving, you earn it, right? It's worth based upon your actions or achievements. And we see this very dominantly in our culture, in our North American Western culture particularly. Um, it's often been described that we live in a what's called a meritocracy. Okay, I know these are big words. Some of you haven't had coffee, bear with me. But a meritocracy just simply is a social system whereby success, power, and influence are based on merit and rewarded accordingly. And it's way better than aristocracy. Back in history, the aristocracy, if you were from a certain privileged family, nobility, or you had wealth, you automatically were given power, influence, and success just because of your address or what was in your bank accounts. No merit. You might have been a terrible leader. You might have been a terrible uh, governor or whatever, but it didn't matter. You just had power and authority and success simply because of your address, of your, uh, of your coming from a privileged background. Meritocracy, actually, the, the moral intuition behind it is to say, no, everyone should have a fair chance. So it really is an improvement on that kind of thinking that everyone gets a fair chance and that those that do succeed do so because of their merit. They deserve it because they put in the hard work, they built their skills, they took the opportunities, whatever it is, and they earned it. So this is summed up in um, really, uh, this is a part of a speech Barack Obama uh, gave, uh, I think back in 2015, and you can kind of hear this language come through. I want to read a little bit of it to you. It says, here in America, I was going to try to do the Barack Obama accent, but that's not happening today. Here in America, no, 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 no. <laughs> stay focused here. <laughs> so bad you want to do it though. Here in America, we don't guarantee equal outcomes. Some folks work harder, some folks don't. Some folks take advantage of opportunities, some folks don't. Some people have good luck, some people have bad luck. And things don't always work out where everything is perfectly equal. But we do expect that everybody gets an equal shot. Listen to this. We do expect everybody can go as far as their dreams and hard work will take them. That's a system of merit. So if you want to get ahead, go for it. Take what you've been given and go for it and you deserve it. And, you, and this will come out in different mantras like believe in yourself and you can achieve anything, right? You heard that, right? Maybe at a, you know, a commencement speech at high school, junior school, college, some well-meaning person will stand up, hey, if you can think it, you can do it. Now, internally, let's not, but how many of you think that's helpful or harmful? Is it actually true of reality or is it not? Is it just kind of like a bumper sticker, kind of throwaway line that we do to make us all feel better? But the reality is, no, I can't be anything and do anything I want. And sometimes we'll even throw in a scripture to back it up. A popular one is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or as I like to say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? And so sometimes we mingle this with um, even kind of religious truth. And so meritocracy or this idea of merit thrives in our hyper-individualistic Western society. Believe in, this, in your, believe in yourself and you can achieve anything. But it's problematic. Meritocracy is an improvement, but it's problematic. And for many reasons, just two, I'm gonna, one, it produces a society of winners and losers. It produces a society of those who achieve and those who don't. And so if we achieve, if we succeed, it can lead to arrogance, a sense of entitlement, and contempt for those who don't. You're lazy or whatever it is, whatever contempt we might have for others. While failure can result in self-loathing. 
uh, resentment and a feeling of disempowerment. And so that's not a great and healthy society. That's a dehumanizing society. Also, and probably way more important, is meritocracy is a very naive, simplistic view of how the world works. Because what does it assume? It assumes an equal playing field for everyone. It assumes a just society. And we know that's not the case. The playing field is not equal for everyone. Not everyone has the same opportunities. Even those who do succeed, it wasn't just because of your hard work. There were other factors that obviously played in. Just speak to women and ask them if they felt like it's been a, play, a level playing field for the longest time for them and advancing in careers or what opportunities they have just purely because of their gender. What about people, black and indigenous, people of color? Speak to them and ask them, do you feel like you've had the same opportunities that have been afforded to others who look differently to you? And for me, probably the, 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 uh, one of the most classic examples of where this fails in our society is back in 2019, um, where we had the college admission scandal. Is everyone familiar with that? If you weren't familiar with that, is this, this big scandal that erupted in, in, in America particularly, that wealthy or famous or privileged people were buying their, their kids' ways into these Ivy League colleges and universities because they knew they couldn't get there on merit. They weren't smart enough, they weren't clever enough, whatever it was, but they had money. And so they would donate money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, by the way, to these universities, and the kickback was their son, their daughter, got a free pass into an education system that then deprived someone who probably had the merit, had the skill, had the knowledge, but didn't have the bank account, and so they were denied that position. And so it's problematic if we're going to build a meritocracy a meritocracy and believe that that's the way the world works. Ecclesiastes would just say, you think that that's how the world works. It's not as simple as that. That's within culture. What about within religion? We see this within religion. Um, karma is an example of merit, right? If I do good, I expect good to come back to me. Merit, if I do bad, should expect bad to come back to you. Demerit and reward or punishment comes because of how you live your life, right? It's a way that we that we sometimes think about the world. Sometimes we wish karma on people who are bad to us, right? It's going to come back and get you. But sometimes it doesn't. Proverbs, you know, sometimes, sometimes Proverbs, you know, sometimes grade three optimistic teachers, sometimes evil people succeed and good people don't. What do we do with that? Mr. Ecclesiastes, yeah, that's hevel, <laughs> right? What about even sometimes in, in other religions are very works-based or performance-based do this, 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 and this, and God will accept you. God will bless you. Or even in a very perverse form of Christianity is what's called the prosperity gospel. If you have enough faith, then God will bless you financially with wealth, with materialism, health, whatever it is. And so we see that, again, it's based upon something I do, based upon my merit that gets me uh, advanced in life. And so Ecclesiastes just looks at all this, shakes its head, and you think life is not as simple as that. And so back to that first scripture here I read, it says there one line, same fate overtakes us all. And so what's humbling is that death comes to all of us. Doesn't matter if you're skilled or unskilled, rich, poor. Doesn't matter what color skin you're in. Doesn't matter what gender you ascribe to. Death is the great leveler of all. That's encouraging. 
Then the second scripture we read, we're going to go back to it and read it again. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fell unexpectedly upon them. And so there's five things, five areas where we should see those that have the merit should predict their success. If you're the fastest, you should win the race. Not so, says the teacher of Ecclesiastes. If you're the strongest, you should win the battle. Not so. If you're the wisest, the smartest, the brilliant, most brilliant in the room, the most learned, you should have success. Not so, says the teacher. This really is heaven, and you really are beginning to annoy us. So we see the unjust, unfair, and the unpredictable nature of life under the sun. Time and chance is another thing. You think your life is in control, but the reality is time and chance shape your life more than you realize. Even oftentimes, despite the skill, the abilities, or even the merits that you and I have. And it would feel like death, time, and chance are the real winners with life under the sun. All right, let's take a deep breath because this is heavy. So in light of all this, how can you and I navigate the difficulties of life and living in an unjust and frequently unfair world, but yet still lead fulfilling lives, or as wisdom would say, lives well lived. How do we do that in this kind of world? And so this is where we now take Ecclesiastes for what it is, but then zoom out and say, what does the rest of the story of Scripture tell us about how to live well in this life? The story of Scripture speaks to the angst of Ecclesiastes, and his name is Jesus. And so we're going to get to some great news now, the good news. Jesus is the good news of God's providence, of his judgment and grace in an unpredictable and unjust world. Let's look at those three things of God's providence. So for the teacher of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun does feel frustrating, an enigma, a mystery, perhaps meaningless or vanity at times. And we might say, yeah, if you're really kind of looking at it from that lens, it probably is. But God is a God that's involved in our lives, that he's not absent from this world, that his providence says that he cares and has concern and intervenes in life under the sun. And that really should get our attention. And so maybe things aren't as they seem, aren't as bleak as they seem, even though sometimes we do see the bleakness of the brokenness of our world. And God's providence invites you and I to trust in this God and to trust Him despite life's unpredictability, despite life's mysteries, despite not sometimes understanding everything. And that's okay. And frustration, but to trust in God actually frees us from life's hevel, its sense of hevel. Um, we haven't uh, touched on this. Um, we probably won't in this series. There's, there's lots to Ecclesiastes. Maybe you know we'll circle back around in a couple of years once we've gotten some more positive vibes in our Bible reading. Um, but it's a it's a really it's a really great book um, if we understand it correctly and use it to goad us to think well about our lives. 
But actually, are there, for all his cynicalness, the teacher of Ecclesiastes has pockets of hope throughout the book. I think it's about six times. And um, commentators and scholars call these the carpe diem parts of Scripture. Carpe diem is a Latin phrase meaning seize the day. Seize the day. Grab a hold of, of the enjoyment today. Seize it. It's a great carpe diem. Seize the day. It's a call for you and I to actually enjoy life as you actually experience it, not as you ought, you think it ought to be. You know, sometimes we miss the moment we're in because we think, thinking, but my life should be this. I thought my life was going to turn out this. And you miss what's right in front of you. That's what Carpe Diem is saying. And that's what the teacher of Ecclesiastes says. You know, amidst all this heaven, there's actually pockets of enjoyment we can enjoy. Just one of those verses, uh, one of those pockets of Carpe Diem I want to reference in chapter 2, it says this. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, we can eat or find, who can eat or find enjoyment. And so that's a carpe diem of like, in the midst of this bleakness, hey, when you go outside today and that sunshine hits you, I know you thought it was cold. If you think this is cold, I can't wait to see your face in December. Pray for Tristan, Pastor Tristan here. Um, when that sun hits you, enjoy that moment, that good gift. If you go out to lunch with friends or family today, enjoy the food that's before you. Don't get caught up in what's coming. Or Enjoy these small gifts. They're not ultimate, but they're good for us if we don't make them ultimate. We don't make food and experiences and all these other things ultimate. But if they're not ultimate, we can enjoy We should enjoy them. Relationships, friendships. That's what the, the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying. Seize the day. God has given us these gifts for us to enjoy to help us through some of the harder parts of life. Right? We're not childish. We don't think this is all life is. No, we understand. Some of you got tough jobs to wake up to tomorrow morning. Right? Some of you have, have tough things that you're navigating. But embrace, carpe diem, seize what today brings. The little gifts, the little enjoyments of life. Secondly, Jesus is the, as God's, um, is the good news of God's judgment. Now, we hear the word judgment, you probably think of it negatively, right? And maybe rightly so. It feels kind of sucky to say, God's going to judge you. But scripture presents judgment in a much more positive light because it's connected to God's justice. And in your heart and in my heart and all the 8 billion people's hearts of the world, there is a cry for a world that's just and that's fair. In whatever shape or form that comes out, there's a cry in the hearts of all of us that we long for a world where justice prevails and evil is eradicated where Proverbs is actually true. If I do work hard, I do this. Where there isn't any kind of little asterisk terms and conditions apply, actually doesn't turn out like that, right? And so, in the words of N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, justice is what he calls a broken signpost. In other words, something that points us in the right direction, but when we get there, we are not yet there. That we long for justice in this world, social justice, whatever it means, to, to level that playing field, to stand up for the rights of people who are marginalized or vulnerable. Those are good things. It's the heart of God. God is a just God. And God exercises his justice through judgment. That we want him to be able to cast judgment on things that are evil and wrong and broken in our world. 
N.T. Wright goes on to say this, the point of justice and mercy is not they deserve it, but this is the way God's world should be. This is how life should be. And we are called to do those things that truly anticipate the way God's world will one day ultimately be. And then lastly, Jesus is the good news not just of God's providence, not just of his judgment, but of his grace. And grace trumps meritocracy. That we live in a world, certainly under Jesus Christ, where we don't often get what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve. Alienation, condemnation, a rebellion from God. He could have justly walked away from us. Jesus took that upon himself. Yeah, so I don't get what I deserve. And then grace tells me we get what we don't deserve. Salvation, redemption, these good gifts of life that God has given so freely to us through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it beautifully. But it is by your own hard work and grabbing hold of the opportunities that are before you that you have been saved. No, it is by grace. Grace is the great leveling field. Rich, poor, black, white, yellow, everything in between, doesn't matter. Man, woman, child, parent. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so there is things that we need to do. There is a sense of a life that we need to live differently because of that. But the order is important. Grace, we receive it, empowers us to do these works. We don't do these works to get the grace. And so Jesus has given that to us freely. And so when we live under grace, we can accept success if it comes our way with gratitude, not pride. We can face hardship as trials, not failure. And we must extend this grace to others in our world and reverse the sense of merit and reverse the sense of winners and losers because grace deconstructs all that and speaks a better word than you and I trying to achieve things on our own by ourselves. Absolutely embrace your opportunities. Embrace your potential. Don't hear what I'm not saying today. But remind yourself that life is not as simple as you're not as in control of your life as you think. That's what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying. And that's okay because God is. That's what the teacher doesn't get to. He's just like, you're not in control of your life. Time, chance, death, they're in control. Like, let that humble you. But then as you span out, God says, but I'm in control. We sang about it even today. God, this is my father. God is in control of the cosmos of your life. And the invitation is, will we trust this God even when we don't understand? Will we walk with this God in the way that he's designed for us to walk with him? And in light of that, let's pray and come before that God today and acknowledge him uh, in our lives. And so, Father, we do acknowledge that sometimes when we look out at the world, we are like this teacher. What's the point? Why is things so unfair? Why is things so unjust? 
Why do good things never happen to me, but people who don't serve you just seem to be prospering? Why is everyone living seemingly their best life and I'm not? This is heaven, Lord. This is weighty. But then you remind us that that is not the only perspective with which to see. That there is an ultimate reality behind that reality. And that's a reality that you govern. That you providentially are controlling. That your providence and concern and care for us is demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ entering history, entering this world. And speaking a better word by the word of grace. That yes, Lord, you are beginning to eradicate all evil, that you are bringing justice, and we long for that to come in its fullness, Lord, and we long to partner with you in bringing justice and goodness and beauty and truth into this world, but we are reminded, God, by grace we are saved. It is by grace that we are saved, and by grace that we can enjoy all the good gifts today, and so we thank you, Jesus, for your grace in our hearts, in our lives. Help us to seize today Lord, help us to see the pockets of enjoyment of the good gifts that you have put in front of us. Open our eyes, God, not just to see the, the brokenness, the heaven, but to see the goodness of God in our day-to-day life through a conversation, a lunch, whatever it may be. And God, would that fill us with gratitude and grace. And then lastly, God, would you make us extensions of your grace to people? Would you give us eyes and a heart to see them through the eyes of grace? and grace alone. We ask and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.